Chapter Thirty Nine, Part One, of the Heir of Redcliffe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Heir of Redcliffe by Charlotte Young. Chapter Thirty Nine, Part One. Beneath a tapering ash tree's shade. Three graves are by each other laid, Around the very place doth brood A strange and holy quietude. Baptistry Late on the afternoon of the 6th of March, Mary Ross entered by the half-opened front door at Hollywell, Just as Charles appeared slowly descending the stairs. Well, how is she? asked Mary eagerly. Poor little dear, he answered with a sigh. She looks very nice and comfortable. What, you have seen her? I am at this moment leaving her room. She is going on well, I hope. Perfectly well. There is one comfort, at least, said Charles, drawing himself down the last step. Dear Amy, and the babe, did you see it? Yes, the little creature was lying by her, and she put her hand on it and gave one of those smiles that are so terribly like his. But I could not have spoken about it for the world. Such fools we be, concluded Charles with an attempt at a smile. Is it healthy? All a babe ought to be, they say. All that could be expected of it, except the not being of the right sort, and if Amy does not mind that, I don't know who should. When Charles deposited himself on the sofa, heaving a deep sigh, intended to pass for the conclusion of the exertion. Then you think she is not disappointed? Certainly not. The first thing she said when she was told it was a girl was, I am so glad. And she does seem very happy with it, poor little thing. In fact, Mamma thinks she had so little expected that it would go well with herself, or with it, that now it is all like a surprise. There was a silence, first broken by Charles, saying, You must be content with me. I can't send for anyone. Bustle has taken Papa and Charlotte for a walk, and Laura is on guard over Amy, for we have made Mamma go and lie down. It was high time after sitting up two nights and meaning to sit up a third. Has she really? Can she bear it? Yes, I am afraid I have trained her in sitting up, and Amy and all of us know that anxiety hurts her more than fatigue. She would only lie awake worrying herself instead of sitting peaceably by the fire holding the baby or watching Amy or having a quiet cry when she is asleep. For, after all, it is very sad. Charles was trying to brave his feelings, but did not succeed very well. Yesterday morning I was properly frightened. I came into the dressing-room and found Mamma crying so that I fully believed it was all wrong. But she was just coming to tell us, and was only overcome by thinking of not having him to call first, and how happy he would have been. And the dear Amy herself? I can't tell. She is a wonderful person for keeping herself composed when she ought. I see she has his picture in full view, but she says not a word, except that Mamma saw her today when she thought no one was looking, fondling the little thing and whispering to it, Guy's baby, and Guy's little messenger. Charles gave up the struggle and fairly cried, but in a moment rallying his usual tone, he went on, half laughing, To be sure, what a morsel of a creature it is. It is awful to see anything so small calling itself a specimen of humanity. It is your first acquaintance with infant humanity, I suppose. 
Pray, did you ever see a baby? Not to look at. In fact, Mary, I consider it a proof of your being a rational woman that you have not asked me whether it is pretty. I thought you no judge of the article. No, it was not to inspect it that Amy sent for me, though after all it was for a business I would almost as soon undertake, a thing I would not do for any other living creature. Then I know what it is, to write some kind of message to Captain Morville, just like the dear Amy, just like her, and no one else except of course my father wrote him an official communication yesterday very short but the fact must have made it sweet enough savage as we all were towards him as there was no one else to be savage to unless it might be poor miss morville who is the chief loser by being of the feminine gender said charles again braving what he was pleased to call sentimentality well by and by my lady wants to know if any one has written to poor philip as she will call him, and by no means contented by hearing papa had, she sends to ask me to come to her when I came in from the wheeling in the garden, and receives me with a request that I would write and tell him how well she is, and how glad, and so on. There's a piece of work for me. Luckily you are not quite so savage as you pretend, either to him or your poor little niece. Phew! I should not care whether she was niece or nephew but for him, at least not much, as long as she comforted Amy, but to see him at Redcliffe and be obliged to make much of him at the same time is more than I can very well bear, though I may as well swallow it as best I can, for she will have me do it, as well as on Laura's account. Amy believes, you know, that he will think the inheritance a great misfortune, but that is only a proof that she is more amiable than anyone else. I should think he would not rejoice. Not exactly, but I have no fear that he will not console himself by thinking of the good he will do with it. I have no doubt that he was thoroughly cut up, and I could even go to the length of believing that distress of mind helped to bring on the relapse. But it is some time ago, and as to his breaking his heart after the first ten minutes of finding himself what he has all his life desired to be, in a situation where the full influence of his talents may be felt, said Charles, with a shade of imitation of his measured tones, why that no one but silly little Amy would ever dream of. Well, I dare say you will grow merciful as you write. No, that is not the way to let my indignation ooze out at my fingers' ends. I shall begin by writing to condole with Markham. Poor man, what a state he must be in! All the more pitiable because he evidently had entirely forgotten that there could ever be a creature of the less worthy gender born to the house of Morville. So it will take him quite by surprise. What will he do, and how will he ever forgive Mrs. Ashford, who I see in the paper has a son whom nobody wants, as if for the express purpose of insulting Markham's feelings? Well a day! I should have liked to have had the sound of Sir Guy Morville still in my ears, and yet I don't know that I could have endured its being applied to a little senseless baby. And, after all, we are the gainers, for it would have been a forlorn thing to have seen Amy go off to reign Queen Mother at Redcliffe, and most notably well would she have reigned, with that clear little head. I vow tis a talent thrown away. However, I can't grumble. She is much happier without greatness thrust on her, and for my own part I have my home sister all to myself with no rival but that small woman. And how she will pet her. And how you will. What a spoiling uncle you will be. 
but now having heard you reason yourself into philosophy i'll leave you to write we were so anxious that i could not help coming i'm so glad that little one thrives i should like to leave my love for amy if you'll remember it the rarity of such a message from you may enable me i was lying here alone and received the collective love of five harpers to convey upstairs all which i forgot though in its transit by arno and his french that they made their friendships to my lady and mrs edmonston charles had not talked so like himself for months and mary felt that amabel's child if she had disappointed some expectations had come like a spring blossom to cheer hollywell after its long winter of sorrow and anxiety it seemed to have already been received as a messenger to comfort them for the loss greatest of all to her poor child though she would never know how great next mary wondered what kind of letter charles would indite and guessed it would be all the kinder for the outpouring he had made to her the only person with whom he ventured to indulge in a comfortable abuse of philip since his good sense taught him that ending as affairs must it was the only wise way to make the best of it with father mother and charlotte all quite sufficiently disposed to regard philip with aversion without his help philip was at breakfast with the henleys on the following morning a sunday or rather sitting at the breakfast table when the letters were brought in mrs henley pretending to be occupied with her own had an eager watchful eye on her brother as one was placed before him she knew mr edmonston's writing but was restrained from exclaiming by her involuntary deference to her brother he flushed deep red one moment then turned deadly pale his hand when first he raised it trembled and then became firm as if controlled by the force of his resolution he broke the black seal drew out the letter paused another instant unfolded it glanced at it pushed his chair from the table and hastened to the door tell me tell me philip what is it she exclaimed rising to follow him he turned round threw the letter on the table and with a sign that forbade her to come with him left the room poor fellow how he feels it that poor young creature said she catching up the letter for explanation ha huh, no listen to this dr henley why he must have read it wrong hollywell march fifth dear philip i have to announce to you that lady morville was safely confined this morning with a daughter i shall be ready to send all the papers and accounts of the redcliffe estate to any place you may appoint as soon as she is sufficiently recovered to transact business both she and the infant are as well as can be expected yours sincerely c edmonston a daughter cried dr henley well my dear i congratulate you it is as fine a property as any in the kingdom we shall see him pick up strength now i must go and find him he surely has mistaken said margaret hastening in search of him but he was not to be found and she saw him no more till she found him in the seat at church she hardly waited to be in the churchyard after the service before she said surely you mistook the letter no i did not you saw that she is doing well and it is a girl i and will you not let me congratulate you she was interrupted by some acquaintance but when she looked round he was nowhere to be seen and she was obliged to be content with telling every one the news one or two of her many tame gentlemen came home with her to luncheon and she had the satisfaction of dilating on the grandeur of redcliffe 
Her brother was not in the drawing-room, but answered when she knocked at his door. Luncheon is ready. Will you come down? Is anyone there? Mr. Brown and Walter Maitland. Shall I send you anything, or do you like to come down? I'll come, thank you, said he, thus secured from a tete-a-tete. -tete. Had you better come? Is not your head too bad? It will not be better for staying here. I'll come. She went down, telling her visitors that, since his illness, her brother always suffered so much from excitement that he was too unwell to have derived much pleasure from the tidings. And when he appeared, his air corresponded with her account, for his looks were of the gravest and sternest. He received the congratulations of the gentlemen without the shadow of a smile, and made them think him the haughtiest and most dignified landed proprietor in England. Mrs. Henley advised strongly against his going to church, but without effect, and losing him in the crowd coming out, saw him no more till just before dinner-time. He had steeled himself to endure all that she and the doctor could inflict on him that evening, and he had a hope of persuading Amabel that it would be only doing justice to her child to let him restore her father's inheritance, which had come to him through circumstances that could not have been foreseen. He was determined to do nothing like an act of possession of Redcliffe, till he had implored her to accept the offer, and it was a great relief thus to keep it in doubt a little longer, and not absolutely feel himself profiting by Guy's death and sitting in his seat. Not a word, however, must be said to let his sister guess at his resolution, and he must let her torture him in the meantime. He was vexed at having been startled into betraying his suffering, and was humiliated at the thought of the change from that iron imperturbability, compounded of strength, pride, and coldness in which he had once gloried. Dr. Henley met him with a shake of the hand and hearty exclamation, I congratulate you, Sir Philip Morville. No, that is spared me, was his answer. Huh, the baronetcy? Yes, said Margaret, I thought you knew that only goes to the direct heir of old Sir Hugh. But you must drop the captain, at least. You will sell out at once. He patiently endured the conversation on the extent and beauty of Redcliffe, wearing all the time a stern, resolute aspect that his sister knew to betoken great unhappiness. She earnestly wished to understand him, but at last, seeing how much her conversation increased his headache, she desisted and left him to all the repose his thoughts could give him. He was very much concerned at the tone of the note from his uncle, as if it was intended to show that all connection with the family was to be broken off. He supposed it had been concerted with someone, with Charles most likely, Charles who had judged him too truly, and with his attachment to Guy and aversion to himself, was doubtless strengthening his father's displeasure. All the more for this hateful wealth. And Laura? What did she feel? Monday morning brought another letter. At first he was struck with the dread of evil tidings of Amabel or her babe, especially when he recognized Charles's straggling handwriting, and resolved not to be again betrayed. He carried it up to read in his own room before his sister had noticed it. He could hardly resolve to open it, for surely Charles would not write to him without necessity, and what, save sorrow, could cause that necessity? He saw that his wretchedness might be even more complete. At length he read it, and could hardly believe his own eyes as he saw cheering words, in a friendly style of interest and kindliness such as he would never have expected from Charles, more especially now. 
Hollywell, March the 6th. My dear Philip, I believe my father wrote to you in haste yesterday, but I am sure you will be anxious for further accounts, and when there is good news there is satisfaction in conveying it. I know you will be glad to hear our affairs are very prosperous, and Amy, whom I have just been visiting, is said by the authorities to be going on as well as possible. She begs me to tell you of her welfare, and to assure you that she is particularly pleased to have a daughter. Or, perhaps, it will be more satisfactory to have her own words. You must tell him how well I am, Charlie, and how very glad, and tell him that he must not vex himself about her being a girl, for that is my great pleasure, and I do believe the very thing I should have chosen if I had set to work to wish. You know Amy never said a word but in all sincerity, so you must trust her, and I add my testimony that she is in placid spirits, and may well be glad to escape the cares of Redcliffe. My father says he desired Markham to write to you on the business matters. I hope the sea breezes may do you good. All the party here are well, but I see little of them now. All the interest of the house is upstairs. Your affectionate C. M. Edmonston. P.S. The baby is very small, but so plump and healthy that no one attempts to be uneasy about her. Never did letter come in better time to raise a desponding heart. Of Amabel's forgiveness he was already certain, but that she should have made Charles his friend was a wonder beyond all others. It gave him more hope for the future than he had yet been able to entertain, and showed him that the former note was no studied renunciation of him, but only an ebullition of Mr. Edmonston's disappointment. It gave him spirit enough to undertake what he had long been meditating, but without energy, to set about it, an expedition to Stylehurst. Hitherto it had been his first walk on coming to St. Mildred's, but now the distance across the moor was far beyond his powers, and even that length of ride was a great enterprise. It was much further by the carriage road, and his sister never liked going there. He had never failed to visit his old home till last year, and he felt almost glad that he had not carried his thoughts at that time to his father's grave. It was strange that, with so many more important burdens on his mind, it had been this apparent trivial omission, this slight to Stylehurst, that, in both his illnesses, had been the most frequently recurring idea that had tormented him in his delirium. So deeply, securely fixed is the love of the home of childhood in men of his mould, in whom it is perhaps the most deeply rooted of all affections. End of chapter 39, part 1